Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to today's launch of the Global Green Finance Index. And this is index number seven. Now, you'll probably know me. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien Group, and it really is a privilege today to have with me uh, Dr. Andy Sloan, dialing in from Guernsey, one of the great advantages of these events. Uh, my colleague, uh, Mike Wardle, who's director and head of our index group. Now, uh, Mike, if you just wanted to move the slides along, the the event that we're showing today is the launch of, of an index, which began some years ago when we were looking at how could we evaluate moves to green finance. This was an analog of something that we had begun back in 2007, which is the Global Green Finance Index. And this Global Green, sorry, Global, <laughs> Global Financial Centers Index, and this Global Green Finance Index runs in an extraordinarily similar way. And so today, what we'd like to talk through uh, on our agenda is very much uh, the idea of what are the results of the index at this time. Uh, Mike will be presenting for about 15 minutes. Uh, we all also thought it'd be very good to have a, an indicative view of uh, how people are reacting to it. And one of the people we've been really delighted to be working with has been uh, Guernsey Green Finance. And Dr. Andy Sloan will be talking about unlocking private capital there. And then I'd like to make a, a few comments and observations uh, about what this means, particularly in light of COP26. And then we'll turn over to you, the audience, for comments, questions, and answers. Now, um, I might point out, firstly, that yes, the slides will be available, although I would encourage you to go and read the full report, which contains uh, a supplement, quite a lengthy supplement, and detailed supplement uh, from Guernsey on their thoughts on unlocking private capital. Uh, we will, of course, be putting the recording up in approximately uh, two working days, so it should be up uh, either late tomorrow or Monday. And finally, we do really want to have your comments, questions, and observations, but please type them into the GoToWebinar chat facility down there because we're here online with you, uh, and we will feed those uh, comments, questions, and observations uh, into the discussion. But with uh, no further ado, if I may, um, I believe, Mike, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much, Michael, um, and welcome all to this event. Um, as Michael said, I'm Mike Wardle, Director and Head of Industries uh, for the ZN Group, um, and here to present the GGFI 7 uh, results. Um, so first of all, a bit about the index itself. We began uh, the index, um, or first published the index in 2018, uh, looking at the development of green financial centres uh, across the world. Uh, the first edition of the GGFI included 47 centres. Uh, this latest edition, includes 78 centres, um, and that's out of 124 centres overall that we uh, look at uh, when compiling the index. So the 78 centres now represented uh, in the index are those uh, which we judge have done uh, sufficient in terms of developing their green finance offer um, to be part of, the, uh, part of the green finance world. The aims of the um, index are really to um, help um, track how uh, financial centres are embedding green finance in their offering and to highlight some of the best practice that we see uh, across the world. Um, a couple of definitions. First of all, what is a financial centre? Uh, we use the uh, definition that was actually developed by UNEP, uh, cities with an intense concentration of financial activity and an interlocking sense of financial sectors and transactions. Um, and there, there is going to be a debate, I think, about how much um, a city is as important as a cluster or group of uh, geographical areas as we go forward. Um, green finance refers to anything which is a financial instrument which leads to long-term uh, sustainability change. Um, and so that's what we mean uh, by those two terms. Mike, sorry to interrupt. I'm just uh, I'm not sure the slides are moving forward. Thank you, Michael. Um, I'll see if I can fix that. I do apologize for that. Um, and uh, the, the slides, if you want to go back and look, are um, up on the web page. Um, and so do find them uh, at some point. Um, <clears throat> but to recap, um, just saying that the, the GGFI uh, now covers 78 centers, um, as opposed to 47 when we published the first uh, section of the index. Um, and the definitions there are the ones that we use in looking at green finance. 
So the GGFI is a factor assessment index. This means that we use two different data sets to combine uh, into uh, the rating um, for the GGFI. The first set um, comes from a survey that we run continuously, uh, which asks um, people in the financial services to rate financial centers uh, in terms of the depth and quality of their green finance. The other set of data um, is, it says 100 plus, but it's now over 120 uh, instrumental factors. These are quantitative measures, indices, uh, and data sources, um, which we use and combine with the uh, questionnaire results uh, to give an overall rating for each financial center. Looking at the <clears throat> range of people who get involved in the GGFI, first of all, respondents, um, you'll see from this that we have um, people from across uh, the financial world uh, take part in the survey, you know, whether it's banking, insurance, the knowledge economy, the policy and um, public finance people, uh, which gives us some assurance that uh, we're capturing the views of a representative sample uh, across the financial sector. Uh, and then the other uh, part of this is the uh, regional breakdown of people who respond to our survey. Um, Asia Pacific, the largest sector with Western Europe second, um, but a fair coverage in terms of people involved in green finance across the world. I mentioned the um, quantitative measures, the instrumental factors that are part of the index. Um, and one of the things that we are able to analyze in the index um, is the correlation between those measures uh, and the overall index results. And this table just gives you an indication, first of all, for all the instrumental factors, um, and then for the sustainability factors, those, are, those that are focused on uh, green and sustainability, you know, which are the measures uh, which highest correlate uh, with the overall index results. Um, and the interesting thing here is that if I am a financial center thinking about um, how to improve my performance in green finance, these are some of the things I may need to look at in terms of where uh, I perform in terms of these measures um, and how I might improve my performance um, which are not just about financial measures, but are uh, quite a lot general measures of the sustainability um, of an individual uh, city or country, um, or indeed the quality of life uh, that comes from being <coughs> focused on sustainability uh, and green matters. So the headlines for the uh, GGFI 7 itself. Uh, first of all, Amsterdam took first place, uh, narrowly um, beating Zurich. Uh, with London a close third. San Francisco um, and Los Angeles both rose um, a number of places in the index to enter the top 10, uh, San, Francisco to, San Francisco to stay in the top 10, but Los Angeles to enter the top 10. Um, Asia Pacific centers all consolidated gains and they're starting to challenge um, incumbents in Western Europe. Um, and one of the themes of the index results is that while Western Europe has been really been the leader um, up in GGFI 1 to GGFI 6, um, the challenge from North America and Asia Pacific uh, is, is, is strengthening. Um, there is uh, increased competition throughout the uh, index. The margin separating centers at the top of the index is narrowing, um, but also the mid rankings in the index are very competitive. Um, and as, as I mentioned, Asia Pacific and North America really charging ahead. And, and just um, as a note, we have up till now presented uh, the Green Finance Index as two ratings, one of depth um, and one on quality. For GGFI 7, we've combined the scores to present an overall picture of centre performance. Um, but in the full report, you can still find uh, the depth and quality ratings uh, that underlie the headline uh, figures. So. The top 10 centers, I've mentioned, the, the, the big news here, I guess, is the gains for North American centers, for USA centers, actually, uh, San Francisco and uh, Los Angeles. Uh, Western European centers in, the, in the, the top of the rankings have been relatively stable in terms of rankings, relatively stable in terms of the ratings. Um, so we're seeing uh, some, some consolidation at the top of the index as to uh, the centers which are likely to uh, remain leaders in the field. Uh, I mentioned that we also um, we, we still track uh, the two dimensions of green finance depth and green finance quality. Um, and this leads to slightly different rankings uh, in terms of the index results. Um, Amsterdam uh, still comes first for green finance depth as it does in the index overall. 
Um, but Zurich takes first place in terms of quality, uh, London second. So in terms of the quality of green finance that's taking place, uh, we believe that Zurich and London are doing slightly better uh, than Amsterdam. And so these things are, again, important um, when we uh, look at how financial centers develop themselves. Um, it means that if I um, look at the way in which centers uh, divide between depth and quality, uh, you can see here that London and Zurich are um, off the line in terms of uh, quality. They have higher ratings for quality than they do for depth. Amsterdam is on the other side of that line um, and has higher ratings for depth than quality. So in Amsterdam, they may need to do some more work on the quality of green finance going on, um, maybe on their skills development. Uh, London and Zurich need to look at how they can make sure that more of the financial activity in their center um, is green. The next analysis I want to share is the ranking by instrumental factor group. So um, I mentioned the 120 odd uh, factors that we use to build the index. Uh, we run the index model uh, several times uh, to produce different rankings uh, just using those factors which relate to sustainability, business, human capital or infrastructure. And this does give a slightly different uh, feel uh, to the index rankings. Um, so you'll see that on that measure, Amsterdam actually only uh, takes top place in business, uh, with London taking top place in human capital infrastructure. This reinforces, I think, the fact that um, you know, the ratings at the top of the uh, index are very close, and it's only a few points change um, that would alter the ranking. And, and really, the message from that is thinking about um, you know, how a financial centre regards itself in terms of uh, the range of um, the index ranking that it sits in, uh, rather than necessarily focusing on the individual number. Uh, so being in the top five or the top 10 uh, may be the goal, rather than necessarily to move up a ranking place or worry about moving down a ranking place. Um, leading centres over time have moved in, um, in the way you can see on the graph. Um, and the key message, I think, for GGFI 7 is there's been a plateau. Um, you know, there's been steady improvement in the ratings of green finance uh, over the years. Uh, that's now flattened off. Um, and you will see that um, you know, each of those centers is now either slightly dropping uh, or has flattened off in terms of its uh, performance. Uh, within Western Europe, we've mentioned that um, European centers uh, you know, are pretty much leading the field. Um, but just to say that beyond the top 10 of the index, Paris and Helsinki um, are very close. Um, and again, um, you know, Paris is only two points away from Stockholm, it's nearly in the top 10. Um, so again, you know, just looking at the index, um, we see that Western Europe you know, continues to hold uh, the lead place. In terms of Asia Pacific, there's been some, um, you know, some big improvements, in fact. Um, you'll see that the ratings for all of the centers in Asia Pacific in the top 10 uh, have moved up. Um, and in terms of changing rank, many of the centers in this, uh, this region have moved up the rankings. Um, so really putting pressure on other regions um, in terms of the top ranked Asia Pacific centers. Um, particular mention for Seoul that's moved up nine places um, and Busan that's entered the index uh, for the first time in this edition. So Korea uh, starting to show in the green finance rankings as well. Turning to North America, uh, again, uh, you'll see that almost all centers in North America have seen an improvement in their rating, um, and you know, other than Vancouver. Um, and there's also been improvements in, for most centers in terms of ranking. Um, but the message here, I think, is that USA centers have started to challenge uh, Canadian centers. Um, and you know, this may be uh, a reflection of you know, the new concentration on sustainability um, and climate change uh, we see in the USA. Turning to Eastern Europe and Central Asia, um, the big news, I guess, is from Kazakhstan. Nur Sultan and Almaty have entered the index for the first time uh, in GGFI 7. Um, and in terms of this region uh, ranking uh, you know, at the top of the ratings, so they've overtaken Prague, uh, that has been leading the GGFI ratings up till now. Um, so again, uh, and, I, and uh, Kazakhstan, for example, issued its first green bond um, you know, only last year, um, and is you know, taking this very seriously in terms of the way that it uh, organizes its finance 
um, through the North Sultan Astana International Financial Center. In terms of Latin America and Caribbean, Sao Paulo continues to lead the rankings and all the centers here have really improved their ratings. Um, but you'll see that most of them have dropped in the rankings as they've been uh, challenged by other centers. And this is really where the Asia Pacific centers have been overtaking and superseding uh, some of the other areas of the world. In the Middle East and Africa, um, again, improvements in the ratings across the board. Um, but Casablanca re retaining its top spot, it's been uh, top in the region since it entered uh, the index. Um, Dubai and Abu Dhabi have both improved their ranking uh, considerably, um, as indeed uh, has Doha and Bahrain enters the index for the first time. So a strong performance there, I think, from uh, individual centers uh, in the Middle East and Casablanca really holding its own in terms of the leading center in the region. So what conclusions can we, can we draw? First of all, that uh, green finance continues to grow in popularity. Um, ratings of green finance rose in nearly all centers with both depth and quality of green finance. Um, and so we can see that you know, people are, um, both in terms of survey responses, but also in terms of the quantitative data, um, there is improvement. Um, policy matters. Um, the, the slide I showed about the instrumental factor groupings um, showed that um, the, you know, the instrumental factors which lead um, the, the table in terms of correlation um, shows cities where the whole city is completely more to clean air, public transport, livability, um, where the culture is one of taking uh, sustainability seriously, uh, it's more likely that green finance uh, will also improve and grow. Um, third, there's no room for complacency at the top. Um, Western Europe is under pressure um, from Asia Pacific and North American centers, um, and you know, that is likely to continue to be a trend um, as things like you know, China's move uh, towards a, a sustainable economy continues, uh, but also across other parts uh, of Asia uh, and the USA. Um, so that brings uh, the headline presentation to the end. Uh, do find the report itself uh, online. Um, and we'd be happy, as, he, as Michael said, to take questions and comments uh, at the end of the session. But I'd now like to hand over uh, to Andy Sloan, uh, Chair of Guernsey Green Finance, uh, to take over the presentation. Thank you very much, Mike. Um, and uh, good morning to everybody. I'm just um, very pleased to say that we're great to be supporting and virtually hosting this launch of the uh, ZN uh, Green Index today. Um, and then thank you for giving me the opportunity to say a few words about the, un you know, the, the need to unlock private capital to support climate change mitigation. Obviously, it's, and that's a key factor to um, you know, uh, achieve the mobilization agenda of COP26, you know, obviously in this year, 2021 of COP26. Um, big, big issues really, uh, mobilizing capital and unlocking um, private capital. Uh, but first, what I want to do is just say a few words about Guernsey Green Finance. Actually, first, a couple of words about Guernsey. Um, we're a specialist global finance center, as uh, the ZEM report uh, flags up. We're a particular expertise and specialism in the servicing of private wealth and private funds and insurance. There's over a trillion um, dollars of assets administered through, through the island. Um, and we're proud to say we're a center of real economic substance, well-regulated, tax transparent, and a strong and deserved reputation um, for beating international standards. So to slide one, uh, Mike. Um, Guernsey Green Finance, our sustainable finance initiative, established over three years ago. It's a public-private partnership, basically uh, created and established to mobilize our skills as a finance center to the cause of climate change mitigation. Our mission is to be at the forefront of the development of sustainable finance, and we do that through a program of international engagement, product development, and training and capacity, ability, uh, capacity building programs. Um, we're very proud to be um, a members of uh, various different UN initiatives. Um, our commitment from, is from the highest uh, levels of politics on the island down uh, across the finance sector. We're a member of the United Nations uh, Network for Greening the Financial System. I'm very proud to be a member of those two. We're also, um, sorry, the, the 
we're also members of the UN Finance Centre for Sustainability and the UN's Sustainable Insurance Forum. And our insurance uh, sector is actually a signatory to the UN's Sustainable Insurance Principles. Our strategy is informed, uh, obviously, by COP21 initially and TCFD, and that green finance is basically the cornerstone of our approach to sustainable finance, making a strategic commitment to be a leader in this field. Uh, and one of the benefits of our early uh, strategic commitment as a jurisdiction is the early development on the island of skills and expertise in this space um, among firms and professionals. Um, but we have established a comprehensive track record and, and an offer in this space and over 75% of fund, Guernsey registered funds are managed or administered by firms that are signatories to the UN principles of responsible investment. But as well as the private wealth and funds narrative that I will be covering uh, today this morning, we've developed momentum in many other areas too, particularly in terms of debt and insurance. Um, the world's largest recycler of aluminium, Novalis, um, or Novellis, I should say, uh, listed a half a 500 million uh, note on the Thais exchange just this month. Novellis is the leading producer of uh, rolled aluminium products and the world's largest recycler of aluminium. We created the very first humanitarian catastrophe bond you, you know, covering pure volcanic eruption uh, using a Guernsey insurance linked security. Uh, and that was sponsored by the Danish Red Cross. And again, that was just done and announced in just just very recently in the last few weeks. Um, so we're very proud of, of, of what we've been able to do and, you know, and, and meeting our objectives. Um, and in, in that vein, um, we created the world's first regulated green fund regime. And I'll come to that shortly. But today, before I come to the, the green fund regime, I just want to go back to a little bit of history and uh, for move on to slide two now, Mike, um, because it's easy um, to take for granted the position we're in today. Um, that is, sorry, Mike, did you see to move the slide on? Yeah, magic. Um, oh, back, back one now, sorry. It was a bit sorry. It's a bit slow. My apologies. I should have remembered about the um, delay. Um, but anyway, it's easy to take for granted the position we're in today with COP26 and the raising of the agenda and the advocacy of initiatives such as the ZN survey. But actually, if one takes allows oneself to take a step back in time, maybe just two years, um, you know, it was not necessarily quite the the case uh, to, as it is today. And in fact. One thing that hasn't changed over that two years is that the fact that the scale of the problem is is just still underestimated. But frankly, we're not mobilizing capital anywhere near fast enough um, to, to meet the climate change, the net zero uh, agenda. You know, that we see a plethora of um, you know, commitments and initiatives being made, but actually if you look at the numbers, the underlying, the levels of investment, um, they're still not there. And, you know, and it's a cumulative effect and, it, and it's, the, the need to invest is just getting greater and greater. The Climate Leadership Finance Initiative, um, the Bloomberg-inspired uh, uh, US initiative, um, estimated that um, 1.5 trillion uh, of investment is required annually just in renewable generation. And that's ignoring transport, adaptation, and much else besides. Um, and the current investment levels globally are not even half that, just to give you an idea of the scale of, of, of the catch up that we need. And you know, frankly, we talk we talk about the um, you know COVID recovery and the greening and recovery, um, but there hasn't been a euro spent on the the EU's green finance, uh, the new green deal. You know, this is all commitments to the future. So, and if we look at the the UK's COP26 website, you know, the donors um, it says the donors must provide provide clarity on how we'll collectively meet and surpass the goal of mobilising 100 billion dollars a year to invest for developing countries. And frankly, that commitment that was made at COP21 is still uh, is still to be met. And so, you know, meeting and exceeding that 100 billion target um, is essential. And we won't be doing enough uh, to deliver the, the trillions needed unless we do more. And private finance isn't going to be a substitute for increasing public finance, but it is going to be vital in increasing the scale and reach of climate action that's needed. And again, what I'd like to do is turn to the return to the um, uh, Climate Leadership Finance Initiative. And, you know, they recently published a report uh, about you know, unlocking private capital, and they have four policy areas. And we like to think that we've aligned our work alongside those policy areas serendipitously, you know, fortuitously, but these are the, the four key aspects that the CLFI uh, recently published. The first being to catalyze, it's important to capitalize new private climate finance at scale. 
It's important to improve the cost and speed of negotiations between parties on specific initiatives, i.e. we need to move faster, and we need to address areas where the market and sector-specific guidance is fragmented and align with the current and global and national policy priorities to accelerate the transition. So those are the policy principles that's in, that's you know we're proud to so so that has guided our work in Guernsey already. Um, and if I may move on, Mike, next to this next slide, which will be again, I'll just take a look. At, I wet my whistle a little bit there. Again, this is slightly historic research, but you know, in terms of unlocking private capital in our area of expertise, um, you've got to understand the motivation of the owners of, of private capital. And so we you know, historically took some, uh, um, undertook some research amongst family offices and private wealth, and I think this is about 25 billion worth of capital represented in our survey. And you get, need to get to the nub of understanding the motivations of the owners of private wealth to unlock that 30 trillion that's supposedly out there, there to be, uh, be uh, mobilised in support of climate change adaptation. And you come back to what is probably a traditional scepticism. Um, it's all great. It's all very well and good as all getting excited and being on the, you know, the, the sustainable and green finance jamboree and getting really excited that we're, we're investing for global good. But one has to remember that at the end of the day, that people invest capital to safeguard its value and also to make a return. And what, you know, it's frankly, at the moment, I do think that post-COVID, we've got a bit of an ESG bandwagon going on where everyone's applying a veneer of ESG and everything has to be ESG compliant. But one mustn't get away and, and ignore the marketing hype. You know, and the narrative about generational shifts and about, you know, the key, unlocking that and moving, you know, more capital into this area still remains the need to have return and proven products. Unlocking the trillions, turning the billions into trillions, the research here that demonstrates moving from philanthropy of private wealth to sustainable investing, the key is to preserve and enhance uh, the capital and, and, and generate return. And if you listen to our Guernsey Green Finance podcast, which I'm really proud of, it's a, it's a top 10 podcast, where I mainly speak to practitioners in the private sector, and you don't get away from this, is the fact that they need to generate return, they need to generate alpha, is front and center at the center um, to unlocking private capital. Um, and it's less a focus on rules, it's less a focus on regulations, and it's, it's a concern with impact and return and the veracity of product. So finally, to a little bit, bit of a taste of our work, what we've been doing in Guernsey, and uh, next slide, Mike, yeah, what we've been doing, I said, aligned with those, those four uh, priorities of climate leadership, finance, and science initiative, I should say, is development of products, tools, and guidance. And so this little taste of our work here, we're very proud that the Guernsey Green Fund regime, and it was a world first, the world's first investment uh, regime or regulatory regime for investment funds. It provides a robust and transparent products for GPEs and LPs alike. We're really proud uh, of, the, of the testaments of support that we've had for this regime. Our rationale in doing this was to develop and provide confidence in the underlying greenness of the investment product, removing fears of greenwashing, which our own research when we were developing the product told us was a major concern holding back development of, of investment capital in this space. Our ambition was to make the fundraising process easier and to enhance uh, the, 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 the flow of capital to this area. And we've been very successful. Both the first and the, and the most recent funds have cited the ability to raise finance based on, predicated on a robust and transparent, and the veracity of the green investment product is a, is a major uh, benefit. So our, and our ambition to make that fundraising process easier has worked. Um, the regime itself is very straightforward and simple. We like to keep things simple in Guernsey. The fund rules are just 12 pages long, including annexes and schedules, and it's a notification disclosure regime. Um, it applies across any fund type. We have some of London's largest renewable infrastructure funds in, with part of the regime, and we have some very small private funds investing in forests, uh, for example, uh, and other things besides. But the robustness and um, confidence of the accreditation and verification process has been absolutely key to the success of that regime. 
Our research also told us that we needed to make the you know guidance simple and um, keep things simple and straightforward and easy for uh, for practitioners. And actually, the the need to educate and provide and capacity build is an issue that crops up time and time again in 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 the latest research. And part of the work we've done with the UN is understanding the skill shortages uh, that exist within the sector. And it's the lack of expertise in this space that, you know, frankly, we worry about. But it, it motivates uh, the development of the tools and the guidance that we've been, you know, uh, busily publishing over the course of the last few years. Um, if you look to the specific tools that we've done to invest, uh, to invest capital, we developed the, the world's first green private equity principles, which we published um, last year. Broadly speaking, an idiot's guide, a, a 101 for GPs and LPs. And every conversation survey told us that the landscape was really confused about worthy but lengthy reports. You know, in this like, sort of ESG era, what wasn't wanted was another several hundred page long report um, that did nothing that, other than act as a paperweight, perhaps, or a doorstop. So two pillars, eight principles, 20 pages. We've, we created something we believe is an indispensable blueprint for the PE sector. Tim Hames, Director General of the BVCA from 2013 to 2019, uh, recommended them. And he said they had the beauty, yeah, the beauty of simplicity, I should say. So private wealth and this in, in, in here, which is you know, a very much a specialism for Guernsey and you know, looking to unlock private capital to the agenda is you know, what I'm talking about today. This is a piece of guidance that we published late last year that's caught a lot of people's eyes. Um, we produced a report to help family offices build sustainability into their offerings uh, for clients to allay concern about trustee duties and making sure that sustainable investments were capital. So we produced this guidance for sustainable uh, trust deeds. You know, as you can see there, sustainable investing for private wealth and family offices. And it clarifies that the inclusion of sustainable clauses within a trust deed can ensure that sustainable investing is consistent with the duty of the trustee, that is the, broad, the basic fiduciary duty in, you know, in common law parlance. So and we ensured that we, it was consistent with the trustee's duty to preserve and enhance, so far as is reasonable, as the value of the trust of the property. So that's what we've been doing. And our commitment to sustainable finance means that we've been committed to the education of you know, the private wealth sector in particular on the complexities and specifics of how we funnel um, private capital and unlock it to mobilize the COP26 agenda. Like I said, in December, we published this piece of research here. And shortly, we'll also be publishing a new piece of research in the next couple of weeks, um, looking at corporate governance uh, in family office and private office, um, practitioners, and, and actually giving an even more detailed uh, report on how that the whole structuring can work in the support of the, uh, the, the sustainable finance agenda. So this is what we've been doing again. See, we're delighted this morning to be virtually hosting the ZN uh, Index uh, publication. Um, ourselves, uh, we've got a great uh, track record of working with ZN, and we're really proud of the of the work that ZN have done in this field. Um, and I just like to leave at my sort of session section this morning by referring to the fact that we have very shortly our Sustainable Finance Week in Guernsey, which is the, the uh, beginning of the 9th, 11th of, of, of June. Uh, we've got a range of great speakers. It's a hybrid report, obviously, with a hybrid uh, 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 conference. Uh, there'll be a physical event in Guernsey, but without uh, necessarily the travel without the open borders. But we've got Ben, ben Caldicott from the, the UK Green Finance Institute. Uh, we have Sir Roger uh, Gifford, Oliver Gregson from uh, the MD of uh, JP Morgan's Private Bank. We've got a host of leaders in the sustainable finance and private capital field joining us for Sustainable Finance Week in June. And I hope you'd be um, there to join us too. So thank you very much, Mike and Michael. I'll, that's hopefully time to be the 15 minutes for my um, short session on unlocking private capital. Well, thank you very much, Andy. Uh, and you really are a bit of, a, I'm not sure this is the best metaphor, but a pocket battleship of green uh, off the coast of Britain. The, the number uh, of initiatives, but also the impact that they've made has been extremely impressive. Um, I'm coming back really just to talk about a, a few points. It's a lot to take in this morning, and I would encourage you of course, to read the report, which contains much more detail. Uh, but let's have a little look at a couple of areas just before we move into the general discussion. Uh, the first thing I, I wanted to talk about is what is really on practitioners' minds? People who think that they're in green finance, what are they thinking about? And we, of course, ask them that. And we get back this spider diagram, uh, spider web diagram, showing uh, their, their areas of interest. Now, in the past, uh, this has 
been dominated very much by green bonds on the bottom right, almost pointedly, and a little bit on sustainable infrastructure and renewable energy investment. And those three areas are still quite strong. However, uh, this spider web has broadened out over, over the last uh, seven editions. And in fact, in previous studies, it was very clear that green bonds almost dominated the area. So we are seeing uh, some expansion in what people believe constitutes green finance and the areas and skills that they need to have. Uh, of particular note here, though, might be to look at the weakness effectively of carbon disclosure and carbon markets uh, on the top right. Um, I personally believe this is going to change quite markedly. The carbon market experiment, which was what was bound into the Kyoto Agreement in 1997, uh, came a bit of a cropper in 2007 when, under the European emissions trading system, the governments of Europe issued far too many permits and the market did what a market should do, supply exceeded demand, and the price went uh, close to zero. But that market has rebounded quite significantly over the last two and a half years. Uh, we also saw on the 1st of April, the Chinese government uh, put out a national ETS for China. And of course, we've had a, a new administration in the United States looking more seriously at getting a hardcore price for carbon and uh, declaring what that ought to be in its opinion, which was over $50 a ton. So there's been a significant move in this space and I'm looking forward perhaps in uh, GGFI8 uh, to see uh, some improvement in that space. The second uh, area we wanted to look at on what's on practitioners' minds are the drivers of green finance. Uh, and so next slide, Mike. Um, on the drivers of green finance, uh, what we're looking at here is uh, very much that the folks have been carefully checking out, if I, if I can say that, uh, carefully checking out uh, a whole variety of, of drivers that might make things happen. Um, of course, what's been interesting about that is you'll notice here really two stand out amongst all the many things that there could be. Uh, it's very much uh, the public interest in climate change and policy and regulatory frameworks. And I think this emphasizes a point that we frequently make. It would be ideal that there was no special thing uh, in green finance, that we would treat green finance the same way we would treat shoelace manufacturing finance, that things were bound up into the cost base. This has been a particular uh, topic of discussion, I will say, over the last 12 months here in London, at least, and that's whether or not ESG is really doing the job or whether we should go back to, uh, to the Kyoto COP and really make the carbon price work, which is certainly where the, the Chinese uh, and the Americans are heading. So it's an interesting point here, but I think practitioners are beginning to question whether or not ESG is enough, well, or perhaps is it enough, but is it, is it really relevant at the time available? Um, and there's been a number of discussions as well about the complexity of ESG, the alphabet soup of ESG uh, taxonomies, and of course the moves, uh, almost the taxonomic wars uh, between the EU and Britain and other, and other jurisdictions. So uh, we're seeing the changes here on practitioners' minds uh, as they're moving forward. Uh, I just turned to my uh, third slide, which is to look at COP26 itself. I think it would be remiss of us here in the United Kingdom with COP26 looming in Glasgow uh, in November, not to just dwell upon this for a moment. Uh, so just to remind you, uh, the 97 COP uh, did result in the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, then we had the Paris Agreement. But as Andy pointed out, the scale of investment just isn't really there. And COP26 uh, offers us a unique opportunity to revisit the targets that were set and to submit uh, new long-term goals for mitigation. This has been happening at some pace, uh, not least uh, the recent announcements in America uh, last week where Joe Biden had his climate summit. And so we're anticipating a lot of uh, goals being announced between now and November. Uh, so hopefully COP26 will be able to finish the work uh, the COP25 was unable to conclude, uh, and we believe this could be a, an interesting first real test of the Biden presidency's stated aim of enhanced action on climate change. However, COP26 does raise a lot of high-stakes questions, and uh, for me, uh, I'd leave you in the discussion area with a, a, a few things to ponder. Uh, I mean, first, we've been down this road before. Uh, Basically, at Kyoto, it was, in fact, uh, the idea of using uh, carbon pricing and trading 
to control climate change was a, a U.S. initiative, but then the U.S. did not sign up to the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, President Obama was, of course, a major player in 2015 at the Paris COP, and again, America withdrew from the system. So a lot of eyes will be focused on whether or not the Biden administration is capable of enforcing through legislation some of the goals that it's signing up to internationally. But there's a lot of other things. Uh, COVID-19, uh, impossible not to discuss on any webinar this past year, does question what, what path to take on the road to recovery. Are these actually bad times for big oil or is it a good time to be burning carbon? Uh, a lot of countries are going to be probably uh, more concerned with economic recovery first and worrying about the planet kicking the can down the road yet again. And we've been through these cycles before where uh, green has been seen to be somewhat of a luxury. Uh, you know, very interesting to talk about when the economy is booming, um, but the minute that the economy has got any difficulties, it's pushed to one side. I do think as wealth, uh, financial services, uh, we talk about the tools and the innovation and green bonds, et cetera, uh, but most of these tools have been around for a few thousand years, so uh, I'm not too sure that it's about creating a new toolkit, although one of the things that we at CN uh, and Long Finance have been interested in has been the idea of governments perhaps committing uh, to policy performance bonds, bonds that would pay more interest if they failed to meet their targets. Uh, and the reason for that really is to address the point I made earlier, that the only special thing about green finance is the policy risk in it. Uh, the other question we have is a lot of the pushing and pulling uh, of government and government interventionism uh, could push private capital out. And this will differ country by country clearly, uh, but in a lot of European countries, announcements about government funds actually delay private investment because you want to wait until the fund is out, you see what the parameters are, et cetera, so you hold back on your current investment for fear that a competitor of yours might wait and get the government subsidy or co-funding or whatever. So government interventionism is not necessarily a good thing along private. In fact, the UNFCCC estimated something that you know, 86% of the funding to eliminate climate change would have to come from the private sector, in which case I'd rather get that 86% out there and I can worry about the other 14% later. So will COP26 deliver? Um, we've got a lot of other problems looming. Uh, carbon has now become a bit of a stick uh, in which to beat trade agreements. Will we see uh, carbon border taxes or border adjustments, as they're often called, uh, arising and uh, really impeding trade and becoming a point of great detail? Or might countries be able to stick some, some broad principles? What do the fossil fuel reliant nations think of all of this and how can they make their financial transition uh, the old stranded assets argument there. And eyes will certainly be on China and the US, well, and also, of course, on, on the EU. Uh, and all this will be taking place in a Britain uh, recently departed uh, from the EU, which is trying to establish its own ETS uh, really from scratch. So there's a lot to play for. And if you like high drama uh, and the high stakes involved, the next, uh, the next few months between uh, May and November could be quite exciting for those of you who like to be political observers or even better, political participants. So I'll turn back uh, to the next slide, just on the agenda, we've covered uh, very much the basics of what we wanted to talk about today. And I'm going to hand uh, back to Mike uh, and ask Andy to join us for the questions, uh, comments, uh, observations, uh, and maybe even some answers, who knows. Mike, over to you. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. Um, well, we have a, a number of questions, and of course, do keep them coming um, if uh, if things things strike you. Um, and first of all, I'm going to take a very uh, technical question um, um, from uh, Vanessa Chan, who just notes that the individual ratings for depth and quality have uh, dropped cons considerably compared to GGFI six, um, and it is indeed just a mathematical issue. Um, we wanted to keep the main index on a scale of one to a thousand. Um, and but we had the choice of weighting depth and quality, but decided that we had no reason for doing that. Uh, so what we simply did was um, you know, divide the depth and quality ratings by two and add them together to complete the, the index. Um, so it's, um, you will be able to calculate a consistent run of figures for depth and quality um, simply by uh, taking the depth and quality measures that we've now published and multiplying them by two or taking the old ones and dividing by two uh, to tie them up. 
Um, so that's the the kind of the, the technical question on uh, on how we've managed the change uh, to a single rating. Um, I'd like to move on to a question about cooperation between uh, financial centres, and probably this one for you, Andy. Um, and Bob McDowell has asked, do we see um, financial centres working together? Um, and obviously, as the UN um, you know, initiative, um, but could you give us a flavour of how that um, cooperation uh, works? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the best thing that we ever did was was join the UN's Finance Centres for Sustainability. It's a group of 30 plus centres now. I mean, it's basically it's a, it's a knowledge transfer and a sharing of expertise. And obviously, with uh, COVID, it's all been virtual for the last 18 months. But previous to that, there would be meetings and the groups would get together. And there, there wasn't any ever a conversation or a meeting or a dialogue that we had that we didn't come away learning something and being able to sort of incorporate um, a specific uh, sort of approach or a tactic or you know just an innovation and that sort of to, to seed or best practice and good ideas across different centers in a, in a what I call a very effective and efficient manner um, has probably been the greatest to me is the greatest benefit of that grouping it brings together like a, a unique uh, sort of set of individuals who are straddling both public and private finance and puts them in the room together and you know they the, the leaders uh, have things to to learn from the laggards and the laggards have things to you know to to, to teach the leaders um and that fit you know that that melting pot of ideas um is broadly um sort of i say the main way that the international collaboration uh, collaboration works yeah, i might add to that um, <clears throat> that there are just so many initiatives out there binding cities together um, I mean, I'd add to that the C40 cities. I would add to that there's a, a non-fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty doing the rounds. So I, I don't think cities are short of, of reaching out uh, and they're reaching out at all sorts of levels. Uh, we're involved in a project across Northern Europe on green, uh, which is an EU funded project, but actually takes in UK cities such as South End. So uh, I don't believe it's a city issue. Uh, but one of the things I have noticed in the larger jurisdictions, of course, is that the cities are fighting some of the strictures and problems that they face, uh, for example, on, on raising green funds and municipal bonds or uh, some of the strictures they face on, on regional transportation programs or regional energy programs. Uh, and in some ways, uh, I, I believe the centralization, decentralization issues that we've been seeing around the world, whether they're Catalonia or Scotland or Brexit, or, or the Northeast um, are raising their head here and saying, is this problem one that's going to be solved top down globally, nationally, or is it a problem that's going to be solved bottom up? The answer is, of course, it's going to be both. Uh, but I believe at the moment, the bottom up area is the one that's uh, having the most difficulty getting going. Well, uh, thank you very much. Um, this question from Maximilian Bierbaum about just noting that the major global financial centers, if you look at New York, um, Hong Kong, Singapore, um, you know, it's only London that's in the top 10 in terms of the Global Green Finance Index. Um, and this is a, uh, something we've been tracking in the GGFI. If you go to the full report, you'll see some analysis of how the leading financial centers in the Global Financial Centers Index uh, fare in the GGFI. Um, and certainly, as Maximilian notes, this is potentially a competitive advantage for London, um, you know, a position that we could reinforce in COP26. Um, but I think the, the truth is that if you're looking at Hong Kong, Singapore in particular, um, they are putting a lot of effort now into green finance, um, both in regulatory terms um, and in you know, developing um, their market. Um, and so, you know, as in as in all matters to do with financial centres, there is hard, there is a great deal of competition. And I'd be surprised. I think London, in that case, just needs to keep working uh, to be at the top of the, at the top of their game. Um, and the other comment I think is it'll be interesting to track what happens to smaller specialist financial centers who've done well uh, in green finance, whether it's Luxembourg in terms of you know, the green bonds market, whether it is Amsterdam in terms of green lending, um, and whether actually the larger and more established financial centers, if they really turn their uh, energy uh, towards green finance, uh, would start eating into the advantage that some smaller specialist centers have had. Um, so we'll be again watching that uh, quite carefully uh, in future editions of the index. Um, moving on, if we could, they, um, Bob McDowell's also asked, how effective um, do we think tax hypothecation would be uh, as a tool for um, you know, public acceptance of green finance? And Michael, maybe you have a comment on that one. Yes, yeah, so, 
I'm afraid I'm a bit of a skeptic on tax hypothecation uh, personally. Um, I believe that you know there's a there's a, a Godwin's law on the internet says that all internet discussions uh, that get uh, get abrasive wind up with somebody accusing somebody else of being a Nazi. Um, and I think there's there's something about you know all economic discussions that result in somebody creating a new tax. So it's a it's a, it's a bit of a difficulty here. Uh, tax hypothecation has really uh, never worked in the in the long term, and this is a long term issue. Uh, so whether it's national insurance contributions or social security contributions or fuel taxes or road taxes, none of them. Uh, the, the piggy bank is always broken into because government funds are are completely fungible, uh, and once that happens, it's there. So tax hypothecation sounds good. You know, people say something along the lines of, well, it's about 2% of GDP, so if we lever, level a tax, then there you go, and problem is solved. Um, but the reality is the government see that pot of money, and a short-term issue like a crisis in schools or in the health sector means that they raid that piggy bank, um, and you can't stop them. Uh, now, there's certain you know, areas where I think hypothecation can work. Oddly, I'd say much more at the local level. You know, we'll levy a tax to repair the village hall or something. Uh, and, and one can one can talk about it, but that's about that, that too is in many ways a fundraising exercise as opposed to a, a real segregated tax uh, area. So sorry to be a bit of a, a downer on tax application, but um, I, I'd almost put the, the shoe on the other foot, Bob. Um, I know we've had these discussions, but please please show me some cases where it's really worked over over a longer period of time. Thank you, and uh, maybe a question, Andy, to for you to start on, but I suspect Michael will have views as well. Uh, Christopher Gleedle asking, you know, with policy and regulation standing out again as the main driver of what of green finance, uh, does it suggest that decision makers still don't see that systemic green behaviour translates to increasing financial value? You had talked about the importance of alpha. Um, are there, is there a sense in which decision makers, in terms of private capital, still don't see that link? Well, it's interesting because I, I saw the, you know, look at what was in the presentation. I saw the, the that that same point myself that the regulation has been seen as quite a big driver. I think regulation has been a driver of the agenda. It's it's helped advocate, you know, the, the fact that Mark Kearney then sort of brought uh, climate change to, to everyone's consciousness by talking about systemic risk and making it a financial stability issue and the TCFD. And I think that really helped bring the whole um, you know, issue to front and centre. But at the end of the day, if you're looking at investing of private capital, you can't get away from the basic economics of it is that people invest their capital to make a return and so therefore you need the return of the alpha it doesn't matter how many rules and the regulations there exist that you have to take these factors into account at the end you can take any factor you want to into account in your pursuit of return and so therefore what's really important for the green finance agenda is to ensure that projects and the pipeline projects do actually generate the, the returns available. Now, and this is a conversation that Michael and I have had in the past, is that you're talking about, you know, is there an alpha to the ESG agenda? And the research is a bit, you know, one or the other. But I think if you are talking about stranded assets and risk and climate risk, and people start, well, as soon as people start to price in that climate risk and discount that, that future to the present, the pricing of assets will change and therefore the, the, the returns available to assets that are green and, and, and support the climate change adaptation or mitigation agenda, their price will rise and, and the returns will, will flow more moreover. I think you know that's a, it's a fundamentally a, um, at the end of the day, you don't get away from the need to generate a return for private capital. You know, there's no point in pretending it was, was otherwise. Michael. I, I completely agree with you on that. There's, it's without question that the, the idea of the, the long-term theme is, is what we're after here. And I, I think it's great that a lot of the initiatives that you've led on Guernsey have attracted private, the private equity, private investment community towards this. Um, but they can't operate alone. And you know, having been deep into the stranded assets debate, in fact, arguably uh, we started it in long finance uh, back in 2005. Uh, we had a project called Burn It All, which looked at what happens if you burn everything. Where, where is it? And then where's the value? What are these huge transfers of balance sheet value in a downward direction? So that was the systemic risk bit. But I think that the question that, that, that was being asked here is particularly good in the sense that where is it 
that we can get the assurance we need to make this a long-term trend. Um, and I, I'm looking forward to COP26 in that regard, the, the tighter it can be, because people tend to forget we've, we've been speaking about uh, global uh, starvation for uh, 70, 80 years. Uh, and if you believe that the world was out to solve that, you would have been investing very heavily in developing countries for 70 or 80 years, and that hasn't really happened. So it's how do you get the belief that there's a genuine desire to solve the problem and a genuine desire to make it cost? Uh, and I and I still uh, I keep batting a figure around mostly to get people to come back, but they all hide away. I go, well, you know, the, the current ETS says that it's 40 uh, euros a ton. The average Briton emits uh, eight tons, uh, so that's 320 euros per Briton per year for 29 years to make net zero. By the way, that comes out almost identically with with the numbers that the macroeconomists come out with, which is about one to uh, one to two percent of GDP. If it was 2% of GDP, it'd be 80 euros a ton. And as you're aware, people are saying that 40 euros is a little bit too low. It should be more 80. The Americans have announced a number that's a bit north. So we're now talking, you know, 320, you know, to 640 a, a Britain per year. What politician has stood up and said that? And that's the sort of scale of cost that we need to start talking about. Um, and then people invoke all sorts of ways to wriggle out of it. Oh, well, technology will save us. Well, that's great. And, uh, I've got some pixie dust, too, that I can add to the mix. So you know, you're in this. From what we know today, those are the scale of the costs. Now, they might they might decrease in the future. Maybe things that we can do. But if we don't want to talk about that scale of costs, then we're really uh, we're really uh, fudging. Uh, thank you for that. We've got time for another couple, I guess. Uh, first of all, just um, Hugh Innes just asking the question about you know, um, what might happen in terms of policy performance bond uh, in the case of you know, unforeseen events. Um, in St. Vincent, there was a you know, volcanic eruption, uh, which is going to make a huge difference to climate you know, locally and so on. Uh, and I guess the, 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 you know, Michael's much more expert on this than, than I am, but I mean, first of all, um, you'd build some of that into, you think about the risk of uh, natural disaster when you're trying to price a bond in the first place. Um, but also um, for an investor, I mean, there's questions of hedging. I mean, how likely do you think it is that that government that issued a policy performance bond would actually meet its climate reduction targets? Uh, and if you think that's very likely, you don't need to hedge it. If it isn't, uh, you might hedge it by investing in, in opposite directions. But Michael, any other comment on that? Well, actually, I think you stated it well, but Andy, you know quite a bit about these volcano bonds, don't you? Yeah, I mean, excuse me. Yeah, in terms of a um, the development, I, I mentioned the the volcano catastrophe bond that was launched in Guernsey, and sponsored by um, the Danish Red Cross just a few weeks ago. You know, in terms of looking at the parametric risk, it's 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 a very useful way to bring in private capital to the um, ad um the adaptation agenda. So we believe that it's going to be a because again, it's you know it, it's it's naked it's based on the returns so you know at the end of the day the investors are looking at these particular products because of the increased risk and therefore the increased you know potential return and using um, innovative you know uh, insurance linked security structures to, to draw in capital alongside these events is you know is an efficient and an effective way to to, to bring capital to the agenda in the developing world mm. Uh, final comments. So, first of all, uh, we've got j j just a um, <clears throat> participant who just asked me to pass on my thanks to Andy uh, for his insights and comments. It's very, you know, found it very interesting the findings okay. this time. Um, and the final question, I guess, is you know, the question: Is it is it important in terms of trend that rankings continue to be tight and competitive? Uh, as green finance needs to be embedded regionally and nationally, and I think it is important. I think that element of uh, both cooperation between financial centres, but also competition between them, uh, is the thing that is going to continue to drive development in this area. Uh, as people you know, see what other people are doing, um, go and talk to them to find out how to do it better, um, but then find another way to move, move that agenda uh, further further on. Uh, I think that's exactly the uh, kind of uh, development that the GGFI uh, set out um, to track and to encourage. Um, as with the UN Sustainable Finances Forum and, and other works being done between cities. Um, so we've reached the end of time. Um, Michael, would you like to uh, finish off the session? Well, well, merely to thank everybody, but I, I would say to those of you out there that that last question that you ended on, Mike, is a very important one. Uh, G G GGFI is there to establish uh, competition, 
I always point out to people who don't like competition, would you watch an Olympics where people didn't care if they won? You know? <laughs> so, um, so, so no, a competition is important. It can get out of control as well, but appropriate competition here leads to sharing of thoughts and ideas. And I think we've got an interesting element of cooperation and competition. And for those of you who um, believe that London can be complacent, I assure you not. Um, I, I'm anticipating huge rises in the Asian centers. China is very serious. Hong Kong is part of that. Singapore had a major announcement last year about its whole commitment to it. So they may have ignored this for a few years, but activity in Asia is huge at the moment. Uh, and I think I'd like to see every financial center be a green finance center to the point that we don't need to talk about it. Thank you. And so just finally, we look forward to the next edition of the Global Green Finance Center uh, due in October this year. Um, if you don't, if you haven't taken part in the survey which underpins uh, the Global Green Finance Index, uh, please do. The reference is here um, on the screen and the slides are available uh, on the events page on our website if you uh, want to pick that up. Um, so it just remains for me to uh, do a round of thanks, I guess, first of all, uh, to you, the audience, uh, for attending today and for your interest uh, in the work of the Global Green Finance Index, uh, ZN Along Finance. Um, um, very strong thanks to uh, Andy Sloan. Normally, we'd have a round mm -hmm. of applause for you, of course, um, but if we can't manage that on this occasion, through you know, there are limitations uh, to virtual technology. So you can have a very small round of applause. I imagine one. You can imagine, <laughs> imagine, imagine it slide several times. Um, and thank you again to Michael uh, for your contribution this morning, uh, chairing and, and leading this work. Um, so thank you. Uh, we'll see you again, um, and we look forward to that uh, in the future. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. We are Guernsey, too.